I am convinced by both personal and pastoral experience that the reason that so many of us make so little gains in our spiritual life from year to year, both in our knowledge of Christ and in our experience of His transforming grace, is not owing to a lack of desire. I believe that the desire to know and to follow and to become like Christ is of the essence of saving faith. In other words, to be a Christian is to desire to know Him and to follow Him and to become like Him. And if that desire is not consistently present, consistently pulling your heart, consistently urging you toward Christ-likeness, then simply put, you are not a Christian. And the Holy Spirit does not reside within you. Because the Spirit's determined purpose in the life of everyone whom He indwells is to make you like Jesus. That's His purpose. That's His goal. That's His aim. He wants to create in you or create of you the image of God's beloved Son. And He does this by awakening and sustaining within you an affection and desire for Christ. So, no, the reason why we so often make so little gains in our spiritual life is not owing to a lack of desire. It is owing, rather, to a failure to purpose and plan for that growth. Most of us, if we're honest, approach the Christian life as if Christ-likeness were a current And all we needed to do was just sit on the inner tube of grace and float down the current towards Jesus. Much like you would float down the James River. But that's not the approach to life that the Bible commends. The Bible does not commend a way of living that says we just let go and let God. This This passive pursuit, if it can be called a pursuit. Rather, the Bible calls us to the active, purposeful pursuit of Christ, wherein we aggressively feed on His Word, lest we starve. We violently attack indwelling sin, lest we die. And we strenuously run the race, lest we fail to make it to the finish line. Meandering through life, drifting on its current, is not going to cut it. In fact, according to Hebrews 2.1, drifting will only lead to danger because the currents of this world, they do not lead toward Christ, they lead away from Him. An example of a man who rejected the passive approach to the Christian life and embraced the the passionate, active pursuit of Jesus was Jonathan Edwards, uh, the early 18th century Puritan pastor and theologian who was probably, at least on this side of the Atlantic, the greatest preacher and thinker of the first Great Awakening. 
1722, when Edwards was but a 19-year-old pastoral apprentice, he began a diary of resolutions to which he added throughout his lifetime and which he read to himself once a week for his entire life in order to remind him of his purpose and to rekindle his passion. In the end, Edward's resolutions totaled 70 in all. And a quick glance at these resolutions reveals the seriousness and the determination with which Edwards approached the Christian life. So what I want to do this morning, just to kind of set the course for this morning's message, I want to read you some of these resolutions along with my non-Puritan paraphrase to kind of bridge the 300-year gap in language, okay? Resolution number one, resolved, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of time, whether now or never so myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general, resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Let me paraphrase that. Since the pursuit of my joy and the pursuit of God's glory are one and the same pursuit, I will make it my purpose to wring as much God-centered joy out of life as possible, which will inevitably lead to the benefit of my fellow man along the way. This will be my one great aim, no matter what difficulties I meet with along the way. How's that for a purpose statement in life? Number five, resolved. Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve upon it the most profitable way I possibly can. Paraphrase. Because time is one of the most precious gifts which God has given me, I will not waste it on drivel or meaningless pursuits, but I will use it to profit myself and others for the glory of God. Number six, I like this one, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. In other words, I will not coast through life, just meandering toward the finish line. Rather, I will run, I will sprint, I will strive toward that purpose stated in that first resolution. My joy and God's glory. Number 13, resolved to be endeavoring to find fit objects of charity and liberality. Paraphrase. I will actively seek out people to love and bless rather than waiting for those opportunities to come to me. Can you imagine waking up in the morning and praying, God, show me people to love and bless today. That's what Edwards did. Number 16, resolved never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except from some real good. Paraphrase, I will guard my tongue and only speak words of blessing and affirmation regarding others unless truth and justice demand otherwise. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. That's a really good resolution for a 19-year-old. I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. I will live in such a way that when I come to the end of my life, I will have no regrets. 
Number 22, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Paraphrase, I will strive to live in such a way that will make me the happiest in a thousand years. 28. Resolved to study the Scriptures so steadily, so constantly, so frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Paraphrase. I will be transformed through the renewing of my mind through the diligent study of the Word. 37. Resolved to inquire every night as I am going to bed, wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I have denied myself. In other words, I will examine myself every night for sin to confess, and I will seek the grace to do better the next day. 56. Resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. Paraphrase. I will fight against indwelling sin even if I fail over and over again. I will not surrender to its rule and reign over my life. 67. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. Paraphrase, I will not merely resign myself to suffer. Rather, I will look for, intentionally look for, God's good and sanctifying purpose in my sufferings that I may learn by them and grow from them. As far as we know, Edwards read these resolutions to himself every week of his life, and that is how he lived a life that shone with the refulgent brilliance of the glory of God and had a profound impact upon this world. It did not happen by accident. It did not happen by meandering through life. It did not happen by floating upon the currents of comfort and complacency, just drifting wherever the winds of the world may take him. It was the result of a determined, resolute purpose to make his life count. And that is what I'm calling First Baptist Nixitu in 2018, myself included. Together, I want us to attack the coming year with a sense of resolve, with a sense of purpose, with a fire and a passion to know as much God-centered joy to learn as much Christ-exalting truth, and to experience as much spirit-wrought power as God will graciously give to us. I don't want to meander through 2018. My brother-in-law and I were having a discussion over Christmas about getting old. I'm 35. He's much older than I. He's 38. And he... He made the statement that he was middle-aged. And my sister, I know you're groaning, but just hear me out. My sister said to him, middle-aged, are you planning on dying on me at, at 76? And he said, maybe. And then we got into this discussion that Google had to settle as to what the average lifespan of a, of a male born in 1980 was. But it did kind of strike a nerve in me. 
I don't know if I'm halfway there, more than halfway, less than halfway, but I do know this, the days of meandering are gone. They're done. I don't want to meander through 2018 or any year thereafter. I don't want to float. I don't want to drift. I want to run the race. I want to strive to enter through the narrow door. I want to burn with the fire of the Spirit. I want to know the power in preaching that Edwards knew when he would stand before his congregation and unfold the great and deep truths of God and the people would melt under the heat of spirit-wrought conviction. That's what I want here. I want to know the joy of communion with my God that Edwards knew and others like him who approach life with the same sense of purpose. But what is that purpose? Okay, If if my aim this morning is to draw you back like an arrow upon a drawstring and let it go, what direction do I point you in this morning? What's our aim to be? Well, there are any number of resolutions that will be made and will be broken in the coming days. Resolutions to eat less, to exercise more, to lose weight, to read more books, to take up a hobby, to spend more time with your kids, uh, to call your parents more frequently, particularly your mother, who would like that very much, and more besides. Okay, But what should our resolution be as a church? What, what's our goal at First Baptist Nixa in 2018? I find the answer to that question in 1 Timothy chapter 4. As I prayed over what to preach this week, as we stand upon the pinnacle of 2017 and we look out over the the vistas of 2018 lying, lying just wide open before us, a text kept coming to mind, particularly one phrase from the end of verse 7. Train yourself for godliness. Resolve yourself for godliness. And so that's what I want to challenge us to in the coming year. Simply put, I want to challenge you to be godly. And I think it's a fitting goal. It's a holy aspiration because it encompasses all of those yearnings and desires that are gnawing at my heart and I trust are gnawing at your heart as well. So let's read this passage, and then I'm going to make three points from it, and then we'll draw it all together for one grand resolution for the church in 2018. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. If you put these things before the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 
Three questions I want to ask and answer from this text. Number one, what is the meaning of godliness? What does it mean to be godly? Number two, what are the means of godliness? How do we get there? How do we train ourselves for it? And number three, what is the motivation of godliness? Why? Why should we make this our one great aim in the coming year and, I hope, in all of the years to come thereafter? So let's begin by defining our terms. In verse 7, Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. But what is godliness exactly? It's not a word that is used a great deal in the New Testament. Most of its uses, I think it's used 13 times in the New Testament, and 10 of them are found in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Well, the best definition that I can come up with is that godliness is that character of life, okay, character, character is built by innumerable decisions stacked on one on top of the other. So it's not a, it's not a one-time resolution, it's a developed character. Thoughts become actions, actions become habits, habits become characters, and characters become destinies. It's that character of life, both internal, talking about our thoughts and our actions, our attitudes rather, thoughts and feelings, and external, our words and our actions, that accords with the character of God, particularly as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You run that by you one more time. Godliness is that character of life both internal thoughts and attitudes and external words and actions that accords with the character of God, particularly as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is thinking as God thinks, feeling as God feels, speaking as God speaks, and acting as God acts, so far as we are able by grace. Godliness is the purpose for which we are created, and it is the purpose for which we have been redeemed. When man was created, he was created in the image of God. He was created for godliness. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make a man who will think as we think, feel as we feel, speak as we speak, act as we act, after our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were created in such a way that sets us apart from all the other creatures on the face of this earth, possessing rationality. Okay, That's the ability to think complex thoughts and form abstract ideas and actually create from those abstract ideas, something concrete to bring those ideas into reality. We possess morality, the ability to make moral judgments between right and wrong and true and false and good and evil. And we possess spirituality. We have the ability to have real communion with God, to love, honor, trust, obey, and worship Him in the context of a covenant relationship. We were created to bear God's image, to reflect His glory upon the earth. We were created for godliness. But in the fall, when sin entered into the human race, the image of God in man was shattered almost beyond recognition. 
Some semblance of that image still remains, but it is corrupted, it's, it's twisted, it's perverted. Our rationality is impaired, and we act in irrational ways. At our worst, we act like beasts. In the words of Jude, like unreasoning animals, we act by instinct. Our morality is perverse, with the result that we call right what is wrong, we call good what is evil, we call true what is false. Our spirituality is lost and untethered from our Creator. We are dead to God, and our hearts are at enmity with Him, and instead we bow before idols in the vain attempt to fill that that God-shaped void within our hearts. We were created for godliness, but the fall has rendered all of us ungodly. But in Christ, not in me, why we sang that song, in Christ, by virtue of His atoning death for our sins, and by the power of His regenerating, indwelling, transforming Spirit within our hearts, the image of God can be restored and renewed. We can become godly once more. Our rationality, our morality, our spirituality can become untwisted, uncorrupted, and brought back into accord with God's character. Godliness is the goal for which we were redeemed. We were redeemed to be brought back to the image of God. So says the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 when he said, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are predestined, church, for conformity into the image of his Son. You were predestined to think as Christ thinks, to feel as Christ feels, to speak as Christ speaks, and to act as Christ acts. That is why Paul calls us to be imitators of God. It's why Peter reminds us that God said, Be holy as I am holy. The call of Scripture, the call of God upon this church is godliness. So if you're going to make a resolution in this coming year, why not resolve to become what you were created and redeemed to be? Why not resolve to become godly? But how? How does godliness happen? Well, it doesn't just happen. Two great works are required. The first, performed by God alone. The second, performed by us, yet in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. The first work that is required, the first great work, is not actually mentioned in this text, but it is implied throughout. It is underneath every line. And it's the work of God in regeneration. Simply put, you must be born again. Or you cannot be godly. Your heart must be changed or you will never desire to become like God. 
John Stott called this, this new birth, the Copernican revolution of Christian conversion from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. What does that mean? Well, prior to the discovery of Nicholas Copernicus in the 16th century, mankind believed that they lived in an earth-centered universe in which all heavenly bodies orbited around the earth, and they drew these astronomical maps with the earth at the center and everything, including the sun, orbiting around it. That's the way they conceived of the universe. That's the way they conceived of reality. Earth stood at the center of everything. Copernicus, however, discovered that the sun and not the earth was the center of a solar system, that the sun was the object of greatest mass which held all other heavenly bodies, including the earth, in orbit around it. Now this turned everything that mankind thought about the universe on its head. It altered the way that we viewed reality and everything in it. And Stott is saying, and he's dead right, that the exact same thing needs to happen in our own lives. We need to experience a revolution of Copernican proportions. By nature, every one of us is born with a fundamentally self-centered view of reality. We believe that we stand at the center of our own universe and that everything else, other people, even God himself, exists to orbit around us and to serve us. That's the way every one of us are born into this world. You can see it in every three-year-old back in that nursery. I exist at the center of the universe and everyone else is there for my pleasure and my benefit. Regeneration fundamentally alters that state of affairs. Our perceived center of gravity shifts and we realize that we and everything else in the universe orbit, rather, around God and we exist for His glory and His pleasure. God, with all of His infinite perfections, is the object of greatest mass in the universe and He holds everything else in orbit by the power and the weight of that glory. Regeneration corrects the innate and perverse bent of our hearts towards self-centeredness and ungodliness. You can hear the serpent whispering in Genesis 3, you can become like God. And Adam and Eve said, yes, that's what I want. And that's what all of their descendants are born into this world saying. I want to be my own God. And regeneration opens our eyes to the reality that we're not God. And that God is God. And that we exist for His glory and pleasure. And that He, in His infinite grace, has condescended to reach down and save us and redeem us and rescue us. And we gladly and joyfully begin to orbit around the sun of God's glory. That's regeneration, and that's the first thing that must happen in your hearts if you're to make the first step towards godliness. Indeed, if you're even to desire godliness in the first place. But in the mystery of His wisdom, even after regeneration, God has seen fit to leave His redeemed in this fallen world still bearing the remnants of our fallen nature. He has seen fit to leave his regenerated, redeemed, 
in this world still battling against this indwelling desire to be my own God and to do my own thing and to make my own decisions and to choose for myself what is good and evil and true and false and right and wrong. As such, there is a second great work that is required in this transformation from ungodliness to godliness. It is the second great work, namely sanctification, upon which Paul focuses in this passage. It is shown in the language that he uses in verses 7 and 8 where he instructs Timothy and us to train yourself for godliness. Train. I'll teach you a Greek word this morning. If you're going to a New Year's Eve party, it'll be very impressive. Gumnazo. And its noun form, training, gumnasia, are athletic terms familiar to Timothy's Greco-Roman context, which you can see from the fact that they form the root of our words, gymnasium and gymnastics. Now, we live in an age that is obsessed with the gym. Obsessed with physical fitness. It's, we live in a culture that's fixated upon sculpting the body in order to achieve a certain desired Ideal image, right? A sleek physique, toned muscles, six-pack abs, and all the rest. In fact, over the next few days, countless resolutions will be made to this effect, and during the first few weeks in January, local gyms will be packed with people looking to make a new start. But not trying to be Debbie Downer here, but guess what's going to happen by the end of January and into early February? The gyms will empty back out, And the ones that will be left are those who have already trained themselves into the settled habit of disciplining their body for fitness. Those who have been going to the gym for years and are in the settled habit of training. Why is that? Because physical exercise is hard work. And it goes against the the innate impulse to complacency and comfort, its rewards are not immediately felt. In fact, in the immediate aftermath, you feel worse than you did when you came in. And the law of entropy, or in this case, atrophy, reigns supreme. In other words, you do not drift towards physical fitness. You do not meander towards muscular tone and cardiovascular health. You train for it. And if you drift, if you meander, if you quit, you will atrophy, you will lose whatever gains you had made, and you'll die of heart disease. And the same is true of godliness, which is why Paul links the two together in verse 8. Godliness does not come to the complacent. It does not come to those who drift, to those who meander through life. It comes to those who train for it. It comes to those who rise early, do their time on the treadmill of Scripture, do the heavy lifting of prayer and meditation. The very fact that in verse 8, Paul sets bodily training and training in godliness side by side using the very same word, okay, the word from which we get gymnasium for each, shows that he views the same discipline, the same determination, the same rigor with which an athlete approaches his physical fitness to be as necessary for the Christian in the pursuit of godliness. 
In verse 10, it is to this training for godliness that Paul refers when he says, look at verse 10, to this end we toil and strive. Those are not easy words, are they? To what end? To the end of godliness? We toil after it. We strive for it. Toil is a word that means to wear oneself out with labor. Strive to exert agonizing effort. These are not words of complacency. Godliness does not just happen. It must be trained for. It must be toiled after. It must be sought with agonizing effort. But how? Well, again, the answer comes from the text. I'm going to show you two places in particular where the means of godliness are displayed for us. The first comes in this passage. The second comes in the immediate context of the pastoral epistles. First, I want you to look at the connection between verses 6 and 7 and verses 7 and 8. Okay, look, ver- look first at verses 6 and 7. If you put these things before the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. Note that. Being trained, same word, in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Okay? Now, the these things that Timothy is to put before the brothers in Ephesus refers back to Paul's teaching in verses 4 and 5 where he says, everything that is created by, good, by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Okay? That's the things that Paul is to put before the brethren, this doctrine of creation and freedom in Christ. But it's a larger part of the words of the faith and the doctrine or the good doctrine that Timothy has followed and that he is to pass on to the church as a good servant of Christ Jesus. So verse 6, you have these words of the faith, this good doctrine, and Paul tells Timothy, give that to the church, give that to the brethren. And then he sets it in contrast in verse 7 with what he calls silly, irreverent myths. In other words, Timothy, give them this, not that. So Timothy is to be trained. The word there actually is not the same as the word in verse 8. It's a word that means nourished. He's to be nourished on the solid meat of the words of the faith and good doctrine, not pagan nonsense. Now, then Paul contrasts those silly irreverent myths of verse 7 with godliness. Rather, He says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So do you see the connection? First, Paul tells Timothy, nourish yourself on the words of the faith and the good doctrine, the word of God, not pagan irreverent myths. Then he turns around and he says, don't give yourself to pagan irreverent myths, rather train yourself for godliness. So if you make the connection between verse 6 and the end of verse 7 into verse 8, the way to train for godliness is to nourish yourself on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine. That is, godliness comes by nourishing yourself on the word of God. 
I want to show you this borne out in two other passages. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, just two chapters to the right, where Paul again connects godliness to the Word of God. Chapter 6 and verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, underline that, there is a teaching that accords with godliness. Godliness accords with doctrine, with the word. You find the same thing in the opening verse to Paul's letter to Titus, Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. There is truth that accords with godliness. Godliness comes from the truth. That truth which Paul was made a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ in order to give to God's elect for the sake of their faith. So what we have in response to the second question... Okay. What are the means of godliness is that first, you must be born again. The gravitational center of your universe must shift such that you stop thinking of yourself as the center of all reality and, and allowing other people and God to orbit around you, and it shifts, God shifts you to where now you see God as the center of the universe, and you are glad to orbit around Him. That must happen in your heart. And when your life is reoriented to His glory and the new birth, you will find new affections and new desires within your heart to become like God and to live in a way that pleases Him. Then, now that those desires have been awakened in you, then the training starts. Now, it's time to strive out of those new affections. It's time to train out of those new desires. And you must train yourself for godliness. And the path of godliness lies through the Word of God. God. It is in the Word that you learn how God thinks, how God feels, how God speaks, and how God acts, that you may think as He thinks, feel as He feels, speak as He speaks, and act as He acts. There is no other way to get to godliness but through the toiling and striving in the Word of God. One question remains to be answered, and that's why. Why ought we to make this our one great aim this year and in all years thereafter? Why ought we to toil and strive in the Word of God? The answer is found in verses 8 through 10. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Note this. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So there is a a reward here. And there. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So, the answer to why we ought to train for godliness, why we ought to toil and strive in the Word of God, is that godliness holds promise both in the present life and in the life to come. We were created for godliness. And the path of godliness is the path of greatest joy. The joy of being who you were created to be. 
You show me a man who is hard after the pursuit of godliness, and I will show you a man who is indestructibly happy. He's content. He is secure. He is courageous. He is not the slave to sin. He is not the slave to fear. He's not the slave to other man's opinions of him. He is joyful. Why? Because he is living the life that God created and redeemed him to live. A godly man is a joyful man. I hesitate to give you this example because I so often fall short. I was like Jonathan Edwards sitting down, writing this sermon, writing my own resolutions. But I want to give you an example that just happened two days ago. So my youngest son is having some problems with being sneaky. He snuck a granola bar out of the pantry when he wasn't supposed to, having eschewed the delicious dinner that Ashley had cooked, he decided that he was going to sate his appetite on a granola bar. And in order to not be the only one to get in trouble, he had hoodwinked his youngest sister into the process as well. And not knowing that his mom was going to be in the kitchen, he uh, rounds the corner to take the wrapper, the evidence of his guilt, and put it in the trash can. And he stops dead and he says, I didn't know you were in the kitchen. So Ashley sends him to me, and I take him to the back room, and, and we have a, a chat about it. And later then, Ashley comes in, and for whatever reason, Isaac has always thought that I hung the moon. And it's, it seems to be at just a fever pitch right now. He's just in love with me. And I sat by and I listened as Ashley says this to him. Don't you want to be like your daddy? And Isaac says, yes. And she says, your daddy doesn't lie. If you want to be like your daddy, you need to break this habit now. And I waited. I waited in that moment for the guilt to come and knowledge of some deceit to flood my heart to know that I was a hypocrite and it didn't come and I thanked God for it because I used to be a liar. I experienced a joy in that moment that only comes through godliness. Do you want that joy? That's why you need to train yourself for godliness so that your six-year-old has someone to look up to. A godly man is a joyful man, and the end of godliness is eternal life and the fullness of joy in the life to come, which is our hope set on the living God. Simply put, godliness is the path of greatest joy. Edwards knew this truth. 
He lived this truth. He breathed this truth. His resolutions are saturated with this pursuit of joy through godliness. He knew that we were created for joy, that this joy was to be found in living fully for God's glory, resolution number one. He therefore determined to live with all of his might, resolution number six, that he might obtain as much God-centered, God-saturated happiness as he possibly could, resolution 22. And I invite you and I in the coming year to the same resolution. Joy through godliness through the word of God. Joy through godliness through the word of God. Because I want to be happy in the coming year. I'm tired of not being happy. But I don't want to be falsely happy, and I don't want to be flippantly happy. I want to be truly, deeply, contentedly happy. I want to know my God. I want to experience sweet communion with Christ. I want to know the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through my life and my ministry. And I want the same for each and every one of you. And I am convinced that the path to that happiness, the path to that joy, leads through godliness, and that the path of godliness is tread along the Word of God. The way to grow in godliness, to train ourselves to godliness, is to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, to toil and to strive in the Scriptures. So here's my challenge to myself and to this church in 2018. Make godliness your goal and pursue it through the Word. Determine this year to immerse yourself in the Scriptures. Come to our worship services to hear the Word of God preached, and come in such a way that you come expectantly, determined to hear what it says, to obey what it commands, to believe what it promises, and expecting to be transformed thereby. Come to our connect groups where we press the Word into our hearts and we seek to apply it to our lives, where we talk about it, we discuss it, we hold one another accountable, we pray for one another, all centered around this Word-centered fellowship and this word-centered pursuit of godliness. Get up in the morning and open your Bibles and read a passage and look for three things. Look for a light bulb, something that sticks out at you. Look for a question mark, a question that's something you don't understand that you're going to press through and answer. Look for an arrow, an application point, some way in which this text applies to your life and pray and study until you've got it. Immerse yourself in the scriptures in the coming year. Feed upon it. Approach it as the vital daily nourishment of your soul. Strive for its meaning and application. Make 2018 the year of the Word. Every challenge that I thought about bringing you this year, challenges regarding giving and discipleship and missions, all of them are subsumed under this great and glorious goal, which is godliness. Seek to become like God. And everything else is going to fall into place. And we at First Baptist Nixa will shine like the stars in the radiance and the glory of holiness for the glory of Christ and the furtherance of his kingdom. So in the style of Jonathan Edwards, let me craft our resolution for 2018. You see it there on your bulletin. Resolved 
to train myself for godliness with all my might through regular interaction with the Scriptures. Both in my daily reading and meditation and in my weekly attending to the Word preached, I will aggressively, yea, violently, strive to renew my mind and conform my life to the truth that accords with godliness, that I may think, feel, speak, and act as is pleasing to God and redounds to His glory, in order that I may attain to as much joy as possible in this life and the fullness of joy in the life to come. May God grant us the grace to keep that resolution in this coming year.